evening everyone welcome to another episode of bensil talks today we have an interesting man chirag mehta who is with quantum mutual fund and i have been trying to chase chirag for a long time uh, finally good to have you on the show chirag pleasure is all on mine i think uh, there are times which are kind of challenging and therefore you know couldn't get space to do this but look forward to it uh thanks chirag and jumping straight in chirag the first question is uh, you know when i looked at your profile and we were researching uh we saw that quantum is any baby in a quite a unconventional uh, you know uh money manager and uh, they have you have a esg vertical uh you have a team in place you mentioned where you always been uh, looking at this much much before the storm esg is you know now coming into vogue so can you run us through you know your philosophy to start with sure absolutely uh, so esg is not new to us uh, it's kind of ingrained in our investments right since 1996 so governance what we called as an integrity screen in those days uh, was part of our investment thesis in terms of anything that we look at governance was a big big uh, decider in terms of whether we invest in that company or not right if there is not good governance we will not even touch it with a barge pole so uh, so Yeah, governance has been very very important in our philosophy to governance is when you shake hands with someone and you don't get your five fingers back never shake hands with that person again so that is the kind of thing that we had towards governance so if there is any uh, unethical or anything that you know we were not comfortable with in especially in terms of treatment with the minority shareholders uh, that is the things that we avoided uh, fast forward uh, to 2014 Uh, that is when we got sensitized about the importance of environment and social though we had softer aspects of environment and social ingrained into our investments even since uh, as i said 2000s but uh, 2014 is where you know it kind of became very very important because of the changes that we saw maybe climatic conditions maybe maybe the world waking up to these kind of challenges or be it our clients asking us that you know uh, esg is getting important and that is why we said that yes now it's time to uh, up the ante on environment and social fronts as well and we kind of started building our process on environment social so firstly we reached out to you know uh, various service providers or rating agencies who kind of uh, uh, give you ratings on esg uh, as a process but uh, what happened there was uh, these when we asked for sample reports from these uh, rating providers uh, they kind of gave us a few and uh, which companies we were not even comfortable on the governance front these ratings had a very high rating of those companies so uh, so we said this doesn't work for us and therefore we kind of started building our own process of evaluating companies on esng and uh, we kind of went through our own learning curve built our own team built our own processes and when we were comfortable and said that uh, though it is going to evolve going forward as well but we kind of came to a framework where we can rightly analyze a company on esg and that is where we launched the fund in july 2019 so it's been a long journey for us decades of experience uh, going into what we now have a esg as a terminology we are all looking for sustainability and hopefully esg as a process is the answer to that uh, so uh, we think uh, the work that we have done will lead us to kind of choosing towards uh, Uh, companies that can act as stewards of capital, and therefore we can put our clients' money behind those companies. Uh, so I think that's been our good, rewarding journey uh, on ESG. 
thanks for sharing that shera uh, pretty uh, insightful and i'm sure a lot of our listeners and you know would be surprisingly you know uh, happy to hear that uh, that you've been uh, looking at this uh, from a long time uh, culminating into an ESG fund in 2019 uh, so if you can share uh, some insights or stories in terms of when you went about it how did you actually if you liked a company and wanted to invest in it but you know let's say they didn't have enough women board members or they had some other environmental issues how did you really sensitize them and how did they take it can you share some experience of yours so if you look at the indian landscape you know there are various kind of companies in different ends of the spectrum there are some very good companies who are doing great work publishing a lot of data and there are some companies who are uh, doing good work but not coming out with any kind of data sets they are doing good but there is not much data available even if you look at their disclosures are kind of boilerplate disclosures and there are some companies which we want to avoid which are not esg compliant or not good esg companies Uh, so when we look uh, went out to looking at these good esg companies you know uh, i mean they we were surprised to see that they had fabulous practices in place for example i'll give you an example of a cement sector cement is one of the highly polluting sectors out there uh, about That's 8% right. of the global emissions come from cement as a sector so uh, there are companies in india which rank significantly better in terms of environmental pollution and other uh, things that come under e like water waste management those kind of things and they rank on all these parameters far better than the global counterparts right even the big global companies that are very well renowned uh, they are far better than them uh, you uh, would have heard of eu taxonomy which are eu regulations in terms of classifying which are what is sustainable what is not sustainable so within that uh, you have these indian companies are well within the range in terms of not crossing that outer threshold that eu taxonomy has laid out plus there are couple of companies who are uh, within that eu framework called as sustainable meaning uh, doing things that mitigate the impact of climate change so uh, i think we have fabulous set of companies some go beyond that traditional remit and our eye is for looking for these kind of companies that that will that go beyond the traditional remit and i think uh, they are getting rewarded on all sides be it investors be it consumers be it the society or be it their employees who are happy and make the company survive and thrive and therefore you know uh, there are rewards kind of built in in terms of these companies from all sides so sure. uh, i understand that and you know i'm sure there are companies which are forward looking but i'm sure even the best of companies has a lot of scope to improve uh, you know uh, gender equality you know and now we're talking about uh, the pay differences which exist uh, board representation independent directors don't have a voice there are a lot of issues i'm sure in terms of you know uh, uh, esg parameters which can be looked at so what i was specifically interested in knowing did you come across such companies which were uh, you know excelling band large in all uh, most of the fronts but were wanting in some of them and you really needed to talk to them to sensitize them about it and you know that brought about a change sure uh, many companies are aware of those challenges and those uh, areas where they lack uh, what we really see as investors is the intent whether the company has intent to improve today they may not be perfect on all silos of esng but they may be somewhere close to that uh, finishing race right uh, and therefore we can look at what is the intent they have what is the action plan they they have in uh, improving on those areas 
and are they progressing towards that or not, right? We kind of look at materiality as a concept and see what things are very, very material, which are non-negotiable. And when we look at other factors, we kind of have that approach that give time to that company and look at their intent first, measure their intent and see if they are progressing in that right direction or not. And that's the approach that we have and that has worked wonderfully well. So uh, uh, many of the companies which are good on many of the factors, maybe lagging on some, they are very, very aware. And as investors, we think it's a fiduciary duty to kind of nudge them towards better things, not, not be complacent, even if they are good at certain areas, keep on improving. So engagement is a very essential part of what we do in the ESG. It's not just that we invest in good companies, sit and reap profits, but it's our duty to nudge them towards getting better and better each day. And that is why the engagement, we try to engage with companies. Uh, what we have recently instilled is, you know, first and foremost, as a part of engagement, write a letter to those companies uh, where they lag. So that feedback is essential for a company to uh, see what they can prioritize and where they need to work. Uh, so that is what we have been doing right now is trying to, uh, uh, earlier we were only talking to companies when it was on controversies uh, which come to light, right? If there are any questions or are any bad practices or anything that comes across, we would liaise with the company, the board, the management and see uh, how they can, uh, how they respond to it. And therefore we are able to take a call on those companies. Uh, but now it's going beyond. It's not only looking at companies from a divesting or investing perspective, it is about seeing that whether the companies improve or not. And I think that is where the biggest change is coming in terms of ESG contributing towards uh, society, towards the uh, uh, environment and towards everyone's benefit. Fair enough. You know, uh, which brings me to a very important question. You said now you're going beyond and trying to engage with the companies, talk to them proactively. Uh, so how is the conversation in the boardroom, you know, in terms of, or mid-sized and larger companies, when you bring up these issues, do they feel this is important or they prioritize it given the lot of other business uh, issues they face, especially in such challenging times? Yeah, so in the boardrooms, it's nascent still, but incrementally that's a trend. We are seeing incrementally more and more uh, agendas kind of shaped up uh, towards discussing ESG as well. And this is led by two things. One is investors, largely, who are, who are, on the, who are uh, running ahead or leading the pack. And it's well supported by regulations and consumers both. Uh, if you say in some sense, the onus is shifting, right? There is board oversight becoming very, very important on these areas. Uh, one is to show the intent and seriousness that you know it's not only the teams involved or the management or the uh, functional heads involved. It's also the board is serious about it and looking into those areas, right? Uh, because investors are asking, what is the board doing it? Is, is ESG or risk uh, uh, in, inculcating risk uh, management and ESG both interlinked now or not? Uh, and also regulators are mandating that disclosure. If you have seen the new uh, business uh, responsibility and sustainability report that the SEBI has come out with last week, there they are asking questions saying that, you know, uh, to what areas, to what functions, is there a board oversight on these issues uh, there or not? You need to, uh, you know, uh, respond whether there is a board oversight and on which areas there is a board oversight. 
so so i think incrementally the agenda is largely going to be shaped up or there will be an inclusion of esg factor at least the material esg factors in board boardroom conversations uh, in, in exceedingly more and uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's the surest way of uh, the company showcasing that there is a serious intent and what we say and do is just not greenwashing uh so so i think uh, that's that's the way board agendas will shape up going forward fair enough uh, you also mentioned that you know there are certain set of companies in terms of disclosures very uh, you know minimal and they are not sharing enough and um, uh, you know that how how is that changing in the landscape right now given you mentioned about uh, sebi's new you know norm for disclosure uh, so can you just take us through in terms of what are the new regulations and norms coming in place both formally and informally which is going to push that so uh, earlier many of the companies were giving some disclosures which was a boilerplate you could just make out what what they are essentially doing in these areas so now if you see the new uh, new uh, uh, regulations called brsr by sebi which states that in very detail in each of the areas in each of the things that you do you have to disclose a lot lot more data which was not the case earlier so now with the regulatory push and uh, this year it is mandatory but from next year top 1000 companies have to disclose that detailed data which is essential for measuring esg traits of a company so uh, that regulation i think is a game changer overall even if the company likes or not doesn't like it they will have to give data because it's regulation now right now it will be on us because there are not enough verification mechanisms out there it will be upon us as investors to kind of decipher what is real and what is greenwashing right in today's world even in the global landscape esg is many times turned into eh which is eyewash hogwash and greenwash so we need <laughs> yeah, to that's navigate right. that's pretty commonly used in yeah terminology yeah, yeah so we need to navigate that esg and separate it from esg so is there a framework uh, that sebi has come up in terms of how the data has to be disclosed and you know how do you ensure the sanctity and the integrity of the data yeah so uh, uh, what sebi has come out with very very detailed formats in each of the areas of their of the company's operations to give out those data and i think self regulations are not stopping at that you know already as they have come out with this they are in the phase 2 and saying that what can we do further to improvise on that so they are not stopping so this really tells you that it's it's for real and they are kind of moving fast and rapidly towards ensuring that things are in place from a regulatory perspective right uh, secondly sure. uh, if you if you look at uh, uh, it is very very detailed and companies will have to give those data second is even in terms of verification uh, they are saying that you know whether this is audited this is verified or this can be cross checked those kind of details are also there in within that formats so the company has to say how much portion of what we are disclosing is audited you know to that extent so and thirdly uh, when you really map you know a cement company with another cement company or you map uh, cement companies in india with global companies you really can make out from the data they are disclosing whether there is a reason for inquiry or not right and therefore that is where our expertise comes into picture and therefore we can navigate this in a very 
better manner saying that you can ask tough questions to companies and even if they are not have verifications but they will have to satisfy you in terms of you know uh, giving you right answers for the data that looks out of space so uh, so that is how we will kind of navigate and uh, uh, keep aside the issues of greenwashing well fair enough. so you know globally also we have the sdgs as a uh, you know sustainable development goals and i do understand uh, that that is also undergoing um, you know scrutiny in terms of making it more specific and contextual in terms of you know uh, having matrix attached to it uh, and uh, that also has a timeline of 2022 in terms of how that should be implemented because just saying eradicating poverty is just making a big blanket statement so having quantifiers for that so do you think this uh, sebi's uh, you know uh, ask in terms of sustainability reporting uh, is going to link up with uh, the sdgs and that becomes a more uniform language that everybody understands so i think sdg is very very important uh, but but i don't think that uh, companies practicing uh, the right things uh, for example a company can contribute 2% of their profit to csr but uh, what they can really do to eradicate poverty you know, they can hire more people as they, as and when they require but what essentially a company can do to eradicate poverty in a way uh, from uh, i mean looking at their business operations overall so uh, there could be uh, i mean these kind of projects they they do uh, uh, but i i don't essentially see them making or moving towards uh, meeting the sdg goals overall uh, what companies can essentially do is what we as investors can also do is you know uh, map each company towards a sdg kind of goal it helps in fulfilling towards it for example uh, if there is a company that does uh, better agricultural practices or supports uh, uh, water cleaning and those kind of technologies so those are the things or if we have those companies in portfolio that do contribute to our sdgs but uh, a company linking directly to an sdg goal or trying to achieve that sdg goal it can be catalyst but it cannot be the end objective right companies can act as real catalyst towards meeting your sdg or goals but really cannot help you fulfill those goals uh, it has to be a policy making agenda to kind of fulfill that sdg goals so sdgs also have uh, you know the reporting mechanism uh, where you're directly impacting indirectly impacting or no impact so that's the yeah. way they actually ask you to classify the 17 sdgs so is that not uh, is that not a kind of something which can be as a framework be used by the companies yeah so companies can report based on whether they help further the sdg goal or not but uh, i i mean uh, there is no direct result of that company's operations towards meeting that end objective that was what i was coming to they can act as catalyst in between but there is a broad agenda company can itself not be an agenda to meet that sdg goal there has to be a broad agenda on the top and companies can be of pillars which can help fulfill those sdg goals to an extent so a company can disclose whether you know uh, uh, through my operations i help uh, better agriculture practices i help uh, uh, to give employment to so many people and therefore it's eliminating poverty to an extent or these are my uh, uh, wages which are fair and living wage and therefore you know it helps in eradicating poverty 
So those kind of things that companies can disclose, but overall, I think they can be very good catalysts, but not an end objective in itself. Sure. And do you think going forward, the international sustainability reporting formats, frameworks, which are already in place, they would be something which will integrate uh, in India and, and the way we do the reporting? Absolutely. I think uh, they are uh, getting integrated in a big way already. Uh, the new BRSR format also, uh, you know, takes takes links from you know those established standards out there like the GRI or SASB or uh, integrated right. reporting. So they are very much getting integrated even today and going forward. I think all these standards out there will kind of merge and become a one relevant standard, and I think it will be uh, adopted globally. So I think we are clearly headed in that direction, and that is the future, I guess. So, you know, because the money also which comes in is global, so the standards are reporting is something which should be quite universal. That's the way forward? Correct. That's the way forward. But I think investors will have to deal with uh, uh, some kind of specifications which are, uh, say, peculiar to India. You know, uh, given the development stage it has been or given that uh, uh, the way Indian companies in kind of transformation they are into, uh, we'll have to sure. kind of adjust to those kind of nuances. But apart from sure. that, I see that integration uh, will happen uh, and very sure to happen. Sure. Uh, Chirak, uh, related question, CSR, uh, now the new norms are if companies have a certain budget of 10 crores or more and an individual project is 1 crore or more, they need to do impact assessment studies by a third party. Uh, so do you think that's a positive? Do you see any uh, any kind of change uh, which will come in in terms of how that money is spent? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very, very important because at the first end, the shareholders whom these profits belong to, they are giving out those 2% of their money towards these kind of activities. And therefore, it is, uh, it is rightly so that justice being done to that money spent, right? And therefore, an impact assessment is very, very essential. Uh, I mean, companies may be meeting the 2% goal, but at many times we have seen, for example, a large corporate uh, giving uh, donations to uh, education institutions where people of the rich go. Is that CSR? You know, we have seen many such kind of practices in reality, and therefore this impact assessment study will be really essential to, for us as investors to see that, you know, company is doing or ethically spending that 2%. And also for all those shareholders who have put in their hard-earned money and letting away that 2% of their money towards CSR spending. So I think that impact assessment study is very, very essential. And I think it will do more justice than not. Uh, and, and it won't be a futile exercise. But is that something which is already uh, being implemented by companies? Because this is a pretty recent move. And do you see any uh, kind of uh, teething issues with these? Now, many companies do report in terms of the spending that they have done, not done the impact assessment. It was us who were looking at, see what kind of impact it would have if they are spending in this kind of areas. Uh, but now with the impact assessment study, it becomes a little more better for us uh, in terms of knowing that, you know, what is the real impact or, uh, because we kind of could classify good spending and bad spending, right? But this is going beyond in terms of looking at the real impact of those money spent. So I think it will, it will help. It will be helpful. 
Sure. So that brings me to a very important question, Chirag. We all talk about triple bottom line, and uh, you know, um, when I speak to people, they have very contrasting views on this. That investor cares at the end of the day only the cash flows and the earnings. Uh, so where do you see, uh, you know, uh, the factors of impact and uh, social good and environmental concerns converging into the balance sheet? And how do you see that, let's say, five years from now? when we look yeah. at a balance sheet or the you know that gives me a more holistic picture of the company so i think that's a very very good question i think uh, uh, triple bottom line as we all know it's uh, the three p's of planet people and profits and i think uh, if you were looking at the profit potential like many do i think you cannot ignore the other two the planet and people like right? uh, for example we all as shareholders look at you know long term profits and uh, uh, see that the company should deliver handsome returns over the long term uh, and and that long term will only come if the corporate survives longer if there's that longevity and if we have seen in so many instances that if it does not have a good societal impact that corporate longevity is kind of under question so uh, it, these are very very related in a real sense uh, uh, for example if you're looking at a better environmental performance of that company Uh, which will mean that there is less risk. The company is ahead of regulations. Uh, its eco consciousness will drive consumers towards their products, uh, and therefore a better revenue, and therefore a better balance sheet at the end of the day. Uh, similarly, if you have a better social performance, uh, which means that you have employees which are happy, you have customers which are uh, satisfied, and you have supply chain which is also um, uh, satisfied with the way you are kind of performing. So. Uh, Uh, these profits when you're doing so much right you have to be at the end of the day competitive and we have seen this so many companies are realizing that you know we are going beyond our traditional remit how can we be more competitive at the same time and that brings in innovation and a culture that kind of fosters trust and innovation uh, 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 in in a, in a big way and therefore you know these companies kind of thrive in any kind of environment uh we have seen many such companies attract lower cost of capital better efficiency and therefore the street kind of rewards them with better multiples so all in all i think look look at the revenue profitability from a uh, employee cost based perspective or from a uh, uh, customer perspective i think it kind of um, leads to a better company at the end of the day and the better company is leading to a better balance sheet strength because they have higher profitability and higher revenue and there are numerous studies which have said that you know there is a positive correlation between sustainability and economic profitability for example if you have seen the oxford study uh, which had kind of analyzed uh, 200 different studies uh, on sustainability they kind of said that 90% of these companies had lower cost of capital 88% had a better operational performance and 80% of them had a better share price performance and there is a kind of logic built into it right if you are a stronger stronger esg profile you kind of uh, more competitive you have better risk management lower systemic risk like lower blowout risk and therefore uh, you kind of have uh, uh, higher profitability and higher valuation so it kind of flows sure. into a good logic over, overall and uh, uh, i don't see that uh, this this uh, uh, is under any any kind of threat uh, i think this will and has and will kind of survive so fair enough but the point is do you think the balance sheet undergoing a change there is there will be innovation there in terms of the reporting and how we read it down the line 
So I think uh, companies are already doing that and we haven't seen any change, right? So I don't anticipate any change because uh, that, I, I don't think that is required today. Uh, continues can operate, continue up because at the same time, they have to kind of be competitive. They cannot have a higher capital sitting idle in want of innovation going forward. They have to do justice because money as a resource is indeed scarce, not in today's world because there is zero cost of money globally, but still, uh, uh, I think in India, it's still very, very different. So innovation uh, will be there. Companies who innovate will be rewarded. Uh, companies who innovate will be able to compete better. And going forward, I think these companies, given that they are adding value to environment and society, they will be further rewarded by the, uh, by the employees, by the customers. And uh, I think that will bring the corporate longevity and higher profitability in the long run. Sure. Uh, so one of the key issues in terms of risk you mentioned, you know, uh, which we, which I see personally and having spoken to a lot of experts, we can very clearly see the effects of it is climate risk, right? And I think that's something which very difficult to fathom. And, uh, but for example, one of the statistics says that the global temperature in India and Pakistan will rise at a much faster rate than the rest of the globe. It could have huge implication. So, you know, when you have such far-fetched risk, which uh, which is difficult to fathom at this point of time, how do you really like kind of plan for this? And um, have you been actually looking at this? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, India has not created the climate problem, but it necessarily has to be part of any climate solution that global world looks at. Right. The reason for that is, you know, if you look at per capita emission uh, for India is much, much lower than what we see in China, Europe, world averages or US. Right. Uh, so India, though it is number three emitter globally, but uh, at a per capita level, it is very, very low. Uh, India, secondly, is going to be a growing economy and with growth, uh, there will be incomes increasing and therefore the spending of uh, people towards consumption of energy, be it cars, be it air conditioners, be it other electrical equipments, is going to be much, much higher, right? So India, as a byproduct of its growth, uh, could be uh, pollution or environmental problems. And I don't think that the world is ready to uh, uh, accept that as a fact. Uh, whatever pledges that we have seen because of the Paris Climate Accord, which itself is too far away from the 2% or 1.5% goal, uh, even if India doesn't contribute anything to the Paris Climate Accord, it can blow a hole to that agenda itself. We want to limit to 55 billion tons. With India not controlling emission, it could be somewhere close to 63, 65 billion tons of CO2. So uh, essentially, India can really blow a hole to the overall climate agenda that the world is looking at. Uh, and uh, therefore, India has necessarily to be part of any solution that we globally can work out on a climate front. Ignoring India will be a big, big, big problem. And therefore India has to be included because that is where the incremental pollution is gonna come from. Uh, so, so there are no two ways about it. We are very, very convinced that, you know, uh, India will have to kind of abide by the global regulations. And therefore, uh, when the onus comes on India, uh, the government to show the pass it on to consumers, to companies, uh, and ensure that, you know, uh, we don't go out of way. And therefore, regulations are surely going to unfold in India at a much faster pace than we anticipate. 
And so uh, though India has not contributed that problem, it has to be part of that solution and companies will have to get sacked together uh, when it comes to that. And therefore, if you don't look at that trade of companies, I think uh, the investments may be under a big, big problem. Sure. So that's at a macro level, Chilar. But at a micro level, at a company level, when you're dependent on so much of natural resources, which you would take for granted, and things like that, how do you really plan for something which may happen 10, 20 years down the line? So you have to see how much you are contributing. And if you increase your production, what it cannot incrementally increase with the same at the same pace of what you are contributing today, right? So you have to ensure how can you be more efficient and incrementally that will be required. If you are not uh, improving your statistics on environment and social factors, it will be very, very difficult for you to get any kind of capital for the growth that you are anticipating. Be it, uh, be it debt capital, be it equity capital, it will be very, very difficult. Incrementally, regulations will not allow you to perform well. Investors will kind of make it harder for you to get that capital. And therefore, if you're not looking at that, then then you might look at, be, be uh, ensuring that uh, there is a question on the survivability of the company. Fair enough. Uh, so, which brings me, Chirag, to the last couple of questions, uh, which is more from a consumer side. So, if I, as a consumer, want to make informed choices and buy products which are environmentally more, you know, sustainable and socially conscious, how do you really think that whole thing panning out? Because everybody's going to talk well for themselves, right? But as a consumer, what kind of, you know, uh, changes you see in terms of certification coming in or and frameworks coming in to actually manage these kind of things. So I can buy, like, let's say, green products. Sure. Uh, if you look at uh, the air conditioning industry in India, I think it is doing a fair amount of good job uh, when it comes to their rating standards. Every couple of years, uh, the rating standard kind of upgrades. And uh, therefore, you know, next time you buy your AC, uh, it's going to be more and more efficient. So they are uh, improving the efficiency in a very big way. And I think I... That is a model which will kind of be followed in most energy-intensive uh, products out there. So I think uh, we have kind of an example out there which is working really well. I think we need to uh, set more examples in various different products. Uh, one is uh, uh, one is looking at what goes in behind that rating and uh, just don't go by the rating, right? Uh, because uh, ratings can really be misguiding. It can really be uh, uh, only if it is fair, like, like you see for air conditioners, uh, what was five stars some time back will be a three star now. And therefore, uh, if you see the five star ACs would have been gone out of the market and therefore uh, they need to innovate, they need to bring the technology and therefore upgrade themselves to get that to that five star standard. And by the time they have worked towards it, in the next couple of years, it again changes and upgrades. So uh, if, if that is the kind of model, then you are fine with the ratings that you follow in terms of energy efficiency and stuff. But uh, otherwise, uh, many times you need to be aware of the tag marks out there. They are just for namesake. They can be bought. They can be uh, very, very controversial. Sure, absolutely. So, That's right. so, so, uh, so I think uh, most products, given that regulations will come in for many of the products, I think automatically we are there for an upgrade. Uh, so it will be owners of the manufacturer going forward and less of the consumers. So do you think consumers are becoming more discerning and research-oriented? They want to really know what they're buying, how much of carbon footprint that will generate. Do you see this thing becoming more mainstream? 
yes i think for the millennial consumer i think those traits really make uh, uh, more appeal i think they are willing to pay a slightly higher price if they see those kind of eco consciousness or environment friendly uh, traits associated with the product so i think uh, yes today's generation and incrementally we will have those as big purchasers of various products i think the wave of eco eco consciousness is out there and will only become large so uh, so yes uh, and that is another set of uh, 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 reason that com- companies need to comply with those kind of standards to meet the aspirations of their consumers so so i think uh, we are getting sure. from from all angles be it investors consumers or regulations so and clearly uh, driven by the millennials which is a completely new trend that we are seeing absolutely, absolutely. Uh, which means me to the last question it's a burning question out there right now uh, cryptocurrencies uh, beat bitcoin and other currencies they are real big consumers of you know electricity and the whole question around they being esg compliant is you know is coming to the core so what's your take on it and how do you see digital currency evolving going forward sure uh especially with the cryptocurrencies there is a fundamental question that i have is uh, it's not only the stuff around energy intensity but it is more about uh, the fundamental characteristics which is what is the intrinsic value of those cryptocurrencies today we have more than 1000 of cryptocurrencies i don't know what to how can i differentiate between each or the other anyone can start their own crypto does it mean that it is money right there is no history of it being used as money in a way, big way right uh it is not being used as part of reserves uh, like gold which all central banks have as part of their reserve holding right uh gold has a part of being used as money secondly uh it is very very volatile like we have seen recently it swings on tweets by just one person right uh, <laughs> That's uh right. <laughs> and and in a very very big way like 5 10% daily moves is is a common thing in that cryptocurrency uh That's secondly right. just limited supplies fragmentation easily transferable does not constitute as money right like like for example thousands of them out there i cannot differentiate who can i can trust and who my own i cannot and biggest thing about money or currency is trust right so if the That's fundamental right. thing is not there then how does that constitute as money right and the biggest challenge for them is we are soon going to have a central bank digital currency probably uh, which can be created by will of a button in unlimited quantities that you want but uh, unlike digital currencies which are guzzlers of energy you know so there is a i i think uh, uh, it, it's it's uh, I, i think cryptocurrencies though blockchain as a technology is far superior and can be helpful sure. in many things but i think uh, i don't see cryptocurrencies doing a big thing uh, going forward i think uh, uh, you have better avenues uh, you have uh, things like gold i think they are much much better and proven things than opposed to cryptocurrencies so i will stay with but, the traditional uh, time tested things like gold so sure, but uh, chirag i have also been reading a lot about this because you know out of curiosity and to see how this you know how the pros and cons weigh so there is been this whole thing about lot of poorer nations where uh, the local currency is very volatile there's been a lot of social change because of that people have been able to freelance online and they've been able to freely transfer money through bitcoin or any other forms of 
crypto uh, you know so the so the whole point is democratization of money and not being owned by a central authority which is really you know the main ask of, uh, of, of you know of crypto and and so going forward do you think a digital currency you know evolving on those lines which is not really governed by a bank or a group of nations and which actually lets you you know uh, easily transact globally with minimal or no transaction costs i i think the biggest risk to that agenda is uh, is central banks well will they like a competition or not no will there be regulations unfolding on that side or not and if you ask anyone in a poor nation maybe say in africa or maybe a small village in india will they like something like a bitcoin at a 60000 price or not no the answer is clearly no a democratizing uh, currency is a, is another thing but uh, overall uh, what is fundamental to that currency what brings them what what will bring a trust to that currency right thousands of them are there but you don't know which one will survive which one will not will i want something that is doing well today at a 60000 price or not uh, so all those questions are really unanswered and i therefore i don't see uh, a bright future for crypto as a currency because there is numerous challenges out there there are numerous questions on regulations on the central bank willingness to allow these kind of currencies to operate and uh, therefore i think uh, all those who are moving into it are ignoring all these risk when they get into these kind of uh, assets sure also uh, chirag just as a follow through from a esg perspective what would be ideal currency to have or what would be the ideal way people should be able to do business globally seamlessly frictionlessly so i think uh, esg uh, is a way uh, doesn't choose uh, a currency because uh, it, it it has no uh, no bearing in terms of what currency it it could be right it's not making that choice uh, but anything that is energy intensive again again goes against the principles of uh, you know uh, being energy again the way the currencies are been operate uh, operated today from a social perspective i don't think uh, it's desirable because uh, they are being kind of uh, printed by central banks across the globe in large quantities which kind of brings the inflation problem and therefore from a social fabric perspective it's not not so good today so i think uh, assets uh, which can help you uh, kind of uh, move or generate wealth beyond that inflation mark i kind of put asset from a yes social fabric at the same time Uh, so i think esg equities would be a great currency in a way uh, because <laughs> they are great companies at the same time they are taking about talking about good esng so i think uh, having assets like that will only only get better on esg and it will help you uh, 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 overcome the problems of environment also from a social perspective it will be helpful for holders because you know uh, equities in the long run will kind of generate wealth or returns which will be better than your inflation rate and therefore from all stakeholder perspective i think esg equity if it that were to be an asset class or a currency i think that will be the uh, biggest uh, win for everyone i think chirag that is very well said as a money manager uh, so just one last question from a retail investor perspective whether sitting in india or globally 
how does he evaluate the company from an ESG perspective with the limited data and access to information they have? I think it is very, very difficult, right? Uh, because when we look at companies, we are not looking at just disclosures from companies. We are trying to gather data from various other sources, right? And we are looking at uh, uh, various different things like what is the uh, company doing and saying, is it the same thing or not? We are trying to verify data by talking to different stakeholders, be it employees, be it customers, be it vendors, uh, and trying to verify all the tall claims made by the company. So I think it is very, very difficult for a lay person. In all, when we look at an ESG company, we're looking at 200 to 250 data points uh, for each company, mapping it across within companies within that sector, mapping it across uh, global companies and identifying which companies are good or not. And there is a lot of subjective assessment. Data is one part, but subjectively sure. assessing that data is another challenge which we kind of have uh, overcome that challenge by intensively working towards it and building a framework. So from a, uh, uh, I think it would be easier for a retail investor to analyze the credentials of an ESG manager and banking on him to deliver that portfolio for them. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I think it's been wonderful having you, Chirag, uh, on the interview today. Uh, we discussed a range of issues right from the burning cryptocurrency to uh, to actually, you know, the new regulation you spoke about, which is coming into place. And I'm sure our listeners will be very happy to know about the, you know, the disclosures going up and, um, and the way you've been looking at uh, ESG companies and uh, overall uh, talking about how ESG is not a fad, but it's something which is a, uh, which is a way to evaluate companies, which is the way forward in terms of, um, you know, as a nation, you move forward, sustainability is the key. So I think thank you very much uh, for your time, Chirag. It's been a pleasure having you on another episode of Vincent Talks. So thank you, Raji. Pleasure and look forward to it. Yeah, stay in touch. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.